Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. And welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Mark Claremont, the CEO of Cecilia Health. Cecilia Health is a virtual first provider organization delivering integrated care to patients across all chronic disease risk profiles. Their virtual specialty care solution combines clinical interventions with digital touch points to offer a comprehensive suite of synchronous and asynchronous disease management, including capabilities like remote clinical support, device training, remote patient monitoring, and telemedicine, all delivered via a national network of specialty providers. Now, I'll grant you that sounds like a mouthful, right? But to boil it all down, Cecilia Health essentially offers something they call virtual specialty care. And if you want to know what that is, well, sit tight just one minute, and Mark will be more than happy to explain it to us. Mark joined Cecilia Health in February 2021 after spending nearly 30 years in a variety of leadership roles at places like Lumion, Provent Health, Walters Chlor Health, UpToDate, and Mercer, among other places. So like me, he's been around the proverbial health club back a bit, and I'm sure that we'll get to all sorts of interesting angles today. So Mark, welcome to Definitively Speaking. We're happy to have you. Uh, thanks for having me, Justin. Fantastic time to be here. Beautiful Boston. <laughs> Fantastic. It is gorgeous out today. Cold, but gorgeous. Uh, so let's get started here. What is virtual specialty care? <laughs> you know, well, we'll make the assumption that people know what specialty care is. Fair and enough. Uh, so let's start, you know, you, look, you, you, let's, we're primarily focused in endocrinology, nephrology. So, so let's call that diabetes and um, uh, chronic kidney disease, that kind of thing. And, you, you know, you could go down the, the the street and hopefully get an appointment with somebody in a brick and mortar building and uh, see your local endocrinologist if you're lucky enough to get an appointment. But you know what? With the advent of telemedicine, uh, we go back to 2009. That's when the company started doing telemedicine before that was even a word. And uh, here we are. We provide it across all 50 states and uh, we provide access for patients. There just frankly aren't enough specialists in the world. You and I, we go see our primary care doctor. Uh, they do all sorts of great things for us and, and tell us, you know, send us home with all sorts of updated labs and protocol to go, you know, basically go exercise and eat right and that kind of thing. But, you know, every once in a while, uh, you need to go see a specialist and uh, getting in there just takes a really long time. Uh, and if we can make that more convenient and maybe a little more expedient uh, and overall improve your healthcare experience, hey, that's a win, win, win. Let's do it. So, but like, People saying specialist is not a new thing, right? It's an age-old problem. I have some data I'll get to in a second, right? But what suddenly changed? Why is virtual now there? And, and why aren't like 90,000 companies jumping into this space if it's such an opportunity? Oh, well, there's a, there's a lot of answer to that question. You know, <laughs> there's, um, you know, one, the technology has finally caught up with us. You, you know, you and I are talking here virtually and, uh, you know, so one part is that. So, so now you can have a much richer and robust conversation with someone, whether it's telephonic or video based, you name it. Um, so, so one, you know, two, we have uh, certainly the ex as accelerated by the pandemic, you know, frankly, 
uh, it's a lot safer and a lot easier for patients and certainly more convenient to, and there are some patients, frankly, who just have a hard time getting out of the house. You know, there may be other challenges there. So it's hard to get the brick and mortar. And, you know, so patients want this. Uh, they want the convenience of it. They, they, or, or the necessity of it, frankly. And if you can provide, uh, and there are certainly a lot of contexts for which uh, virtual uh, medicine visit, telemedicine visit makes sense. Um, and so this is what the public wants. Uh, and frankly, this is the way that we can scale access to these very precious commodities, which are our specialist clinicians. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some of the size and scale here, right? So according to the CDC, there are 860.4 million physician visits in the U.S. in 2018, or about 2.6 visits per person, right? Of those visits, the CD estimated that 49% of the visits were to specialists, which works out to roughly 421.6 million visits. Now, fast forward to last year, 2021. Actually, I said two years ago, since we're in 2023 now, but we'll go back to 2021 to have the most recent data. According to data I pulled from the Definitive Healthcare Database, the volume of outpatient specialty visits climbed to nearly 500 million in 2021. That's a jump in just those four years from 2018 to 2021 of 19 while the U.S. population only increased 2 percent in that time period. Why is the volume of specialty care growing so much? Well, you, you know, you have a lot of things. So, well, one, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, so less and less what we're seeing is a scenario where primary care family medicine is trying to do everything all in one visit. And frankly, there's, that's just out of necessity. If you only have 15 minutes to see a patient, you need to maximize that, that efficiency. And, and frankly, you know, we may talk policy at some point from a policy standpoint, we're also asking our clinicians, our primary care providers to do more and more and more within that 15 minute window. So we're, busy documenting on in their electronic medical record system. We're busy trying to uh, uh, capture all these other required elements um, around uh, social determinants of health and health equity. These are all very necessary and, and essential elements of ensuring equitable access to, to uh, physician and patient care. Um, but at the same time, it's all falling on the same burden, primary care. And then you, you've also compound that with uh, HHS having a, a national aspiration to get everyone within uh, within the U.S. to have a primary care practitioner by 2030, and you have a recipe for you have an efficiency equation here. So so you have to figure out something. And okay, so, so let's start teasing apart the the uh, primary care practitioners each patient encounter. How can we make that more efficient? Okay, well there's some things that I should be doing, or should I refer out? And and medicine, of course, is getting more complex. It's accelerating and changing our understanding through research and studies. You know, just the practice of medicine continues to get more complex. You know, we saw this. We've been seeing this uh, as as we go along, and certainly saw that back in our my old up to date days with Walters Kluwer, as we were trying to understand the synthesis of all of this and help provide some decisioning uh, uh, guidelines at the point of care. You know, all of this points to hey, you need to go see a specialist. Uh, let's get you referred out. Um, you know, so that's the good clinical intent view on this. You might look at, uh, you know, I've heard some other folks talk about, well, there's some, you know, maybe lesser uh, areas of, of our, you know, can you maximize the revenue per patient in that, uh, in that context? I personally don't describe to that. I, I can't imagine uh, 
seeing uh, any kind of clinical decisioning that's influenced purely by uh, aspirations to enhance revenue. But reality is that that is also a byproduct of uh, referral out to specialists. And, and so, yeah, we see this significant increase in need. Um, that doesn't mean, by the way, that patients are getting in front of those specialists in any expedient way. Frankly, there just aren't enough of them. And so if that's pushing out someone's care, you know, one of the, I think one of the stats I recently saw was um, uh, uh, pushing out a uh, 20%, uh, 26% increase in average wait times to see a cardiologist. Now, this was just from, uh, from 2020, uh, 2017 to 2022. Uh, so 26 days average wait time to see a cardiologist. Now it's up from 21.1 to 26.6 days. That's a pretty significant increase just in wait times. Um, and you know, that's emblematic of having roughly 7,000 cardiologists in the country. And, and so how do you, how do you, uh, how do you scale that? Um, it's a, it's a tough equation. That's fascinating. There's a lot that you just said. Let's, let's unpack some of that, right? So what I really heard you start to say, and there's a lot, a lot of logic in what you said. I, I like that. So I heard you say HHS is driving everybody to get a primary care physician. Got it. At the same time, as we've talked about with other guests in this podcast, we have got a massive shortage of primary care physicians in this country, something that is just unbelievable. And it's only getting worse as more and more people are leaving, primary care physicians are leaving and going, pursuing other careers. So if I've got a declining population of PCPs with only X amount of hours in their day, and even if they're working X plus two, right? If they're working 10, now they're working 12, which I hope they're not, but if they are, and you've got HHS driving more people into the primary care world, you need an outlet valve, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And it sounds That's to me right. like you're saying that outlet valve is to send these people to specialists and to drive up specialist usage, right? That's right. Okay. That's one of many outlets. Right. So- Couple questions to follow up from that outlet valve, right? The first one is specialists tend to be more expensive than primary care physicians, right? So isn't mm -hmm. HHS inadvertently driving a cost increase in the healthcare system? You know, I, that is a that's a very uh, provocative question. We try to be um, provocative here, undefinitively speaking. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, you, you, I guess the, the the counterbalance to that is: Are you creating? Um, at the end, at the end of the day, better care for a patient, better clinical outcome. And so, if you're looking at this from a longitudinal perspective, you're reducing the uh, the, you know, the the instances of negative outcomes. Maybe the uh, recidivism to re the readmission rates to ER. Maybe you're directing patients better than directing them into urgent care and more even more expensive modalities of of care. Um, so I think, you know, there's some bright folks there who, who are really good at analyzing data. I, I suspect some of that, some of those factors went into their analysis. Yeah. I mean, you could argue I was being provocative, right? And I was kind of testing, <laughs> having a little bit of fun here, but that's what we got to do, yeah. you know, but you could actually argue that we take the whole thing, you know, an ounce of preventative care, you know, treat my diabetes now, get it under control, saves me from 27 emergency visits down the line. So maybe you're adding costs up front and taking it out down the line in ERs and other places. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that's right. And, and by the way, we see that in, in uh, our own data. Um, our, you know, from our perspective, if we can reduce ER utilization in patient uh, hospitalization by 12% in, uh, in our, our diabetes management protocol, that's fantastic. If we can improve somebody's ad adherence to therapy for congestive heart failure, let's say, and so therefore, again, they don't go back to, uh, they don't represent in ER, and at the end of the day, they're living a healthier and happier life, 
with reduced instances of, of expenditure, um, that's, a, that's a win. Well-published data out there for uh, patients with, even just, you know, just look at hypertension. Uh, we work with, within our patient panel, uh, call it about 110,000 patients that initially present to us with hypertension. Um, they may have other, in fact, often do have other comorbidities. Uh, but if you think about someone who's with, uh, uh, without cardiovascular disease, let's say, and again, I'm specifically talking about hypertension in this case, they, uh, there's a two and a half X inpatient cost, a two X outpatient cost, and a three X uh, prescription spend. All of that's an increase if you have uh, uh, hypertension that you need to treat and maintain. So if you are doing a better job of maintaining that, or maybe you can even someone who's on that, uh, that, that cusp of moving into a hypertensive state, you can help extend uh, a healthy lifestyle um, that, that defers and delays that onset of, of treatable um, or, or hypertension that needs treatment. That's a big win and that's a big cost reduction to the, to the system, as well as a reduction in the, the amount of time that someone needs to come and present. I'll add one other piece of data here. So from our data, uh, and this is perhaps, I hope this isn't unique to Cecilia Health, but you, you know, for us, our pieces of data that we look at, we work with a patient with hypertension for six months, and we follow that patient in data for the ensuing 12 months. If you set the right kind of behaviors, and it takes six months to get there, let's say, you set the right behaviors for that patient, 12 months later, they're still adherent to their therapy, and, and they're still, because they're adherent to therapy, they're also living a better and healthier lifestyle and not uh, needing to, to, let's say, escalate their medications or present back into emergency room, et cetera. That's a huge win. Um, and that's a, a, a burden lift from all of this other volume that we're talking about for patient access. Yeah. It's the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Absolutely. So I want to go back to something else that you said a few minutes ago, which is that there is a shortage of specialists in this country. I think, you know, again, shortage of primary care, shortage of specialists. If we're increasing the volume uh, and you're offering virtual specialty care, you're siphoning, I guess, in-person specialists away from to do uh, telemedicine specialists, right? How are you solving that supply problem of specialists? You could call it working smarter. Okay. So let's use our example. So, so we started as an endocrinology practice. This, this company was founded by a gentleman who was at, at um, in his mid-30s diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and he was very appreciative of the support that he got from his diabetes educator, uh, whose name happened to be Cecilia. And so that's the, the you know, founding principles of the company. Where did the name come from? The incredible thing that she did for him. And so he wanted to bring this to the masses. This long predates actually setting up a, a, you know, a specialty clinic itself. This was mainly focused around the coaching and more of the lifestyle management elements of, of learning to live with diabetes and get up and running. We've since pushed ourselves into the core of medicine itself by, you know, in, in, and so now we are not only working within the core of medicine, but all the way out through to the lifestyle uh, and coaching realms. Um, and you can bridge across those things. Um, but if you look at, at access to, to endocrinologists, you, you start to realize pretty quickly, there's only about 7,500 endoc endocrinologists in the United States. And if you were to look at those, uh, you know, map those out across the U.S., you'd see a very challenging bit of access for anybody who's in a rural setting. But I'll say even 
here in, uh, in Boston and our home base in New York City, there are quite a few endocrinologists, but still insufficient numbers of, of endos for the patients who need them. And so what do you do about that to your, to your very important question? And I said, work smarter. And so one of the ways that you can work smarter is by leveraging a very precious resource. So take a registered nurse, registered dietitian, um, get advanced certification, become a CDCES. And now you have the appropriate credential uh, working with uh, an endocrinologist supervision. You can now scale up endocrine services. And so we've been studying this for years, but we've been doing it and studying it for years. There'll be a, um, uh, some data published uh, at some point early next year uh, as part of a three-year study that we participated in with uh, the JAPE Center for Health that demonstrates specifically this very thing, that if you can use your frontline triage, leverage your, your precious resource CDCES as your frontline triage, combine that with the oversight of an endocrinologist and escalate to endocrinologist as appropriate and do a excellent job of understanding when and where to do that. That's how you can achieve scale is specifically in that, in that specialty. Got it. So it's almost like the old saying, helping people practice at the very top of their license, if you will. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And frankly, you know, I guess some people would say, is that hard to do? Uh, it, it is easier, made easier to do today more than ever because of the access to data and because the technology can be driven in a way that can allow for uh, near real-time um, or at least expedient oversight. And if you get and have the right kind of feedback mechanism to course correct where you need to, and then personalize that at a patient level so that you can do this and do this successfully and produce the kind of outcomes that we're having. How much of what you're doing is really specialty care versus chronic care or chronic care management? I like the framework. I didn't come up with this framework. It's a loose visual for thinking of the core of medicine as kind of the, the sun and having these outer rings that eventually uh, are, are filled by, let's say, lifestyle and coaching and maybe even consumer level uh, uh, outer ring. Um, so maybe it's like Saturn. I don't know. You know, yeah. But um, if you think about most population, if you look at what a health plan does, uh, historically, they would hire a, a point, a digital health point player, let's say, to address um, uh, diabetes, sticking with, uh, with to our knitting here. And, you know, they're kind of working in that outer ring. And it's important work. There's no doubt about it. It's effective work. It makes a difference for people. But historically, that's not connected into the core. And the only connective tissue uh, historically would be the patient, him or herself. And, you know, patients aren't that good at being the connective tissue across a fragmented system. And so these single point players are really challenged with, uh, with having longitudinal success, not just with patients, but longitudinal success with their buying population, the, the population health teams, because how can you demonstrate an ROI over a long period of time, or even in the immediate period of time, without having some connective tissue into the core of medicine? And so, so what I think that's one of the unique things that Cecilia Health has realized over these past two years, as we set up this and took this endocrine practice, nephrology practice, pulmonary practice uh, into this virtual realm license in all 50 states, but also ensured that we had the connective tissue with the lifestyle and the coaching. Now you've got something that's much more powerful. And frankly, this is how patients like to work. Um, I'll add a third piece. There is another ring to this that is 
influenced by or operated by pharma. And oftentimes we talk about healthcare as being just sort of that, that, that intense vertical pillar of healthcare system um, uh, funded by health plans and government. And it, it has all its own machinations and, and et cetera. And we think of pharma as mainly clinical trials, research and development, not really paying attention that there are some fantastic patient support programs that are funded by pharma with blockbuster drugs and patients are in those programs getting better, receiving care that kind of falls in that lifestyle coaching realm and uh, having a lot of clinical success. I think what we would all say is clinical success. And we see that we, we actually, I, you know, I talk about a tale of, of two patients, one who both of whom, let's say, are discharged with congestive heart failure. One goes uh, and has a, a tremendously positive experience with her primary care practitioner and maybe even her cardiologist becomes adherent to therapy. Um, because of that, let's say 12 months later, fast forward, maintaining well, um, and so never had to go back into ER, uh, et cetera. And so there's a nice blue check mark next to this patient's success story. And pop health teams are great, uh, happy, everybody's uh, high-fiving each other. Over here, you also have a, a patient Let's say she called into one of the blockbuster drug pharma programs um, that is a nurse-led program that pharma pays for, and that patient also becomes very educated on congestive heart failure, becomes adherent to therapy, um, and has a, and and frankly, it doesn't present back to ER, et cetera, is successfully living with that. So he or she is in this context. There's no data over in an electronic medical record system. There's really limited claims information. And yet this patient got better and is successfully managing her congestive heart failure. That's a gap in this, in, uh, I think, in, as we think about these outer rings and we work across this. And these are the things that we're exposed to with Cecilia Health. We happen to also support these patient support programs. So we have this unique purview into the core of medicine as well as outside and this, this other tier, this other ring of uh, pharma-led uh, patient support programs. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, as I was taking some notes as you were talking, it feels to me like you're bringing together, you know, pharmacy or drug companies, coaching, clinicians, payers, nurses, all in kind of orbit around the patient as the sun, if you will. Let's just keep going solar system analogy here. <laughs> uh, but that's a lot of people you're trying to coordinate. Who's the quarterback? Let's just mix metaphors even more. Who's the quarterback here? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, yeah. yeah. We, we could go into particle theory, perhaps, to, to try to bring it back to the solar system. I, so in, it, is, uh, it is use case specific. Mm-hmm. You know, so the case one, uh, that use case one that I described, patient is the, is the quarterback, the primary care provider is the quarterback for her, this patient's uh, improvement due to a cardiologist involvement. Is it the supporting personnel, uh, the nurses who are doing the education and doing the check-in appointments? I'd say the 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 quarterback of this I get you know at the end of the day everyone's going to put the blue check mark next to the the primary care practitioner and that's fine. Mm-hmm. So I guess let's call the PCP the the quarterback in this case but I would argue that it was actually the system that was the quarterback. Um and you know the patient herself in many ways had to be the thing that glued all that together. And that's not necessarily a positive statement by the way. Yeah. You know, so before joining Definitive a couple of years ago, I spent a little over four years working at Aetna. 
And as you know, as part of that, I spent a lot of time looking at, from an employer perspective, I was designing insurance plans for commercial employers. And we spent a lot of time looking at care management programs and how to try to figure that out. And at Aetna, we came to the conclusion, they may have changed, they've been gone for you know 36 months or so, but still back then it was, the patient should not be the quarterback. The patient doesn't know enough. The patient doesn't have an MD. They shouldn't be doing it. What was interesting about Aetna was that they wanted their care manager to be the quarterback, right? Mm-hmm. And the doctor had too much going on. The nurse is seeing too many different patients. Aetna would quarterback it. Now, what's interesting about this, and you know, you could say the skeptic in this would be, of course, Aetna's happy to be the quarterback, right? Because they can control the costs and they can control the utilization of everything, right? And so I think this idea, and it's something that we've explored on a lot of different podcasts these days, or I guess over the past year, is with all these different people jumping into the healthcare ecosystem, it gets really confusing to coordinate all of that care. And, you know, I don't have an answer on how to do all that. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, I'd say we're getting better every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some really momentous and foundational uh, elements that are shifting, uh, shifting how care is delivered. And I, you know, so you, you could point to the cures act, for example, mm-hmm. and, and, and specifically the trusted exchange framework. And if you are, you know, people don't may not necessarily know those acronyms, uh, or even what the cures act means, but if you think about it as, uh, from a practitioner to a practitioner, if I have access to a patient's history, clinical history, easy access to it, and let's let's assume in the best case that it's patient-driven, um, I'm much more informed about that patient's history. Uh, it's not just the five things that they told it, they, a patient felt like they, I needed to know on my patient intake. Um, now I can have some real data. So, so all of a sudden, I might be able to be a little more situationally aware about this patient who's presenting to me today a little more situationally aware about their clinical history, the reasons why they're here uh, in front of me. And uh, my belief is that makes you a much more informed clinician. It happens to also be a really improved uh, patient experience as well, uh, because who likes being asked, you know, I'm an old guy, you know, having this, you know, 50 plus years of medical history and I'm being asked a very simple question of tell me about your medical history. What am I going to say? I'm going to give maybe the highlights of the lowlights and, uh, and that's it. I, I agree. I, I have to be honest. I remember, you know, I'll date myself. I'm an old guy like you, you know, 20 years ago, I broke my leg and I remember getting a CD of my x-ray images for me to take from the x-ray to the orthopedist looking at me. And I'm going, why am I burying my records around like this? And, you know, I don't know how to interpret this. And the guy's like, what resolution? I don't know what my resolution the x-ray was. What do I, I mean, it's, it's yeah. kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, well, it's not. Look, we've come up, we've we've come a little ways. You right. talk about imaging, and you know, yes, we. <laughs> I remember carrying a a a, a, a DVD from right. the uh, Brattleboro Hospital up in Vermont after I had a, a cycling accident, broke a bunch of stuff, and got back to UMass Medical Center in in Worcester. I handed them the CD uh, so they could ingest those those records, and uh, I later asked for it back. Okay, can I have this back? It's my data. It's my, those are my, you know, those are my bones that you're seeing that are shattered to pieces and, uh, they lost it. Um, <laughs> you know, this is many years ago. Right. <laughs> I hope they've improved their process, but, um, yeah, you know, and so we've come quite a ways. Uh, the really cool thing 
that accident, that particular one, this happened in 2017, so it actually wasn't that long ago. Um, because of our data access, you know, I did a, a patient poll for myself, uh, leveraging Tefka, and I said, well, what clinical data is out there? Sure enough. And with a fire API in near real time, I saw my clinical history, which included this particular accident. And I could see Brattleboro Hospital. I could see UMass Medical Center and where I went to, to get surgically repaired. And it was fantastic. As a patient experience, this, yeah, this is, this is, why is, has, where, where was this all my life? Why has it taken 50 plus years to get here? But you know, and I wouldn't say that we're here yet. We're it's getting better every day. But when I talk about the foundation is shifting, this access to data is uh, it's really unparalleled with anything we've seen before. Yes, it's been decades in the making, and you know that's a podcast in and of itself, talking about the history of HIPAA to to fast forward to uh, the NHINs to um, to High Tech Act and meaningful use iterations one, two, and three, and eventually get to Cures Act and uh, this Tefka framework and it's all exciting stuff, but you know, I, knock on wood, I, I hope we don't do something to 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 you know, look at that as a, a Christmas tree le piece of legislation, as as you know, Washington's prone to do, and start to hang off you know uh, changes that end up complicating the the very important intent of that data stream. Yeah. So let's just stop for a minute and define for all of our listeners out there what Tefka is and the cures and all that type of stuff. So I pulled a little bit up. I I, knew, I expected you were going to go here. So I did a little research in advance. <laughs> right. And so I went to the good old HHS.gov and got some information. Right. So Tefka, T-E-F-C-A, that stands for the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. And that's part of the 21st Century Cures Act, which was actually passed in 2016. And the Cures Act called for a development of a trusted exchange framework and a common agreement, which is basically a non-binding but foundational principle for health information exchange. And the common agreement is a contract that advances those principles. So basically, you know, at the end of the day, you have to take all that government gobbledygook out. It's exactly what you're saying, right? It's creating a framework to share information, trusted handshake, securely, confidentially, so people can share clinical information with their doctors in order to get better, more coordinated care. Right. I mean, that's I mean, right. Yeah. And so I guess I come back to you and say, how are you leveraging that at Cecilia health today? How's that been instrumental in your business? Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, a lot of people will still put this, this whole framework in the early innings stages. I'm one of those uh, people to, to use a Red Sox analogy, my beloved Red Sox. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. One where I'll bring my box of tissues, my beloved Red Sox too, but we'll, Put that off to the side. Uh, I do think yeah, I agree so, with it. it is the early innings, but keep going. You know, so a lot of us, a lot of the players that are, a lot of great companies are out there learning to, uh, are moving the needle forward. And so, you know, whether that's uh, companies like Particle Health, Zeus Health, um, you see Pluto doing something interesting and you could, you know, go through down the roster of QHINs, et cetera. Everybody's, these, these players are all starting to create these, um, get the plumbing right. And at the end of the day, it's one thing to get the plumbing right and to get that data, not only get the data flowing, but actually get the right amount of the right data flowing under the right context with the right security protocols and the right permissions around it, consents, et cetera. All of those, those wrappers. People are working on that stuff. At the end of the day, what do I care about? I care about, I need to be as efficient as possible with my patient. And I want them to have as, as the most elegant experience that they can possibly have. And what I don't want to see happen is a continuation of, you know, 
I don't know if anyone, if, if you yourself, Justin, use some of the newer uh, primary care providers. Um, you know, I won't name names here, but uh, I happen to use one that's uh, uh, well known. Uh, and I, my primary care experience is phenomenal, phenomenal, both in app, virtually, in person. It's fantastic, omnipresent, everything. I can see my care plans, I can see my labs, et cetera. When I got the referral to an orthopedic surgeon, I might as well have been sent into the dark ages. It was a, such a stark contrast. And this, this isn't years ago. This is just you know, within the last six months. Such a stark contrast. There's no need for that. And so if we can leverage uh, and, and leverage this framework, the data accessibility, as well as think of ourselves as in you know, one of those going back to one of the early phrases when we started talking here, integrated virtual integrated specialty care, mm -hmm. integrated with primary care. So now maybe my experience with my primary care application could have been much more seamless things rather than sending me into the dark ages, get my scheduling done, uh, maybe have some bi-directionality with, uh, with my care plan. So maybe my orthopedic care plan now becomes uh, visible and exposed to my primary care practitioner. Maybe that notation gets back there. And I don't have to actually personally be the manual glue that ties those things together. And if Tefka and leveraging the framework can help automate some of that stuff, that's a big win. I, I will say this. The one thing that we're using it, our first use case for this is no, no uh, more complex than uh, automate as much of patient intake as we can. So I gave the use case earlier. I sit down with you, uh, you're my patient for the first time, and I start asking you to tell me the five things that are most relevant within your patient history. How about instead, you've already given me permission to draw those records in, and now I'm just having a validation exercise, a conversation that is, uh, you know, Justin, I happen to see and back in 2010, you had this, this uh, particular accident incident. Have you had anything since? How have you done? Um, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're 12 years removed from that. Um, you know, sometimes people start feeling particular pains or aches or whatever, much more expedient conversation. And frankly, it's so much more personalized. So that's our first use case. And, you know, I could talk about the financial implications of that and the impacts of that, but at the end of the day, uh, from a healthcare user experience, it's fantastic and a much more enjoyable enriching. And by the way, that will also, and our data shows this, will encourage you to come back and meet appropriately next time. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you have a good, have a good experience, you're going to continue to come back. I often joke, though, healthcare is only a place where if you have a bad user experience, you're also going back, right? Doctor leaves a scalpel <laughs> and you have to surgery. You're going back for more surgery to get that scalpel out, right? So, uh, you know, you asked him what kind of my experience. Uh, so I go to the uh, Mass Gen system here in Boston. And all of my providers are affiliated with that. And I use their patient navigator and I have actually really good experience. I can see all my records. I read all the after follow visits. You know, I play amateur doctor and second guess all the test results. Uh, but, you know, I often wonder what would happen if I went outside that network? I mean, I'm lucky MassGen has a pretty big network, particularly in the greater Boston area. But if I had to go out that, I worry about that coordination of care. Uh, you know, you mentioned something interesting and I want to come back to it, you know, We've alluded to just something we will both call the healthcare UX, the healthcare user experience. Mm -hmm. What's your assessment of the healthcare user experience today? Well, you know, I'll take the optimist view. It's it's remarkably better than it's ever been, but it still stinks. <laughs> um, it's not very optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, look, com- compared to where it was even even three or four years ago, it's light years ahead. Um, and you know, and I use I use the example of my uh, direct primary care uh, provider as as that example. It's a fantastic experience. Um, you know, I I hope that you, you know, MassGen and others, I'm sure, are investing in similar technologies. Perhaps they're leveraging their own EMR provider. They are I think. Uh, to to pull that off. Now, whether they can pull that off with their own EMR provider is a is an interesting conversation that you know somebody in Wisconsin may get upset about. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, that's a so we'll leave that one to the side. Uh, reality is, you can advance that ball much faster. I will say this: in your experience with MassGen. Let's say you did have the, the skiing accident up in Vermont or the cycling accident like I did. How do your records get there? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, the tru- if they plugged into the trusted exchange framework, they stand a chance of getting there. And, uh, and, and in fact, as long as people are not, you know, this used to be called the, the information blocking rules. This is what's so funny about it. You, hey, you, uh, Hospital A, you cannot block your data from you know, prevent your data from going outside your moat. You have to, and here's this trusted, this trusted highway to enable that to happen. And here's the format for that to happen. They call it the information blocking rules, but it's, but it's kind of a silly name. It's kind of backwards pointing uh, rather than saying this is a, a trusted, safe way for you to exchange records. And by the way, you need to exchange, exchange records. You can't just hold them to yourself because you're only contributing to the fragmentation in the, in the healthcare universe. Right, but you know the reason they're doing that, right? Because they're, they're worried about leakage. And yeah, I give you inf- let Justin's information walk with Justin. Justin's going to leave my network and go to competing healthcare network. Fine. <laughs> um, I'll ante in with my experience with my direct primary care provider is so outstanding. I can't imagine wanting to go anywhere else. So how about we focus on the user experience, make that great so that you don't want to go somewhere else. So you eliminate leakage in the good old fashioned way of, of earning it. Yep. And now you're getting into consumerism in healthcare. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's consumerism. It I, is. I mean, this is, this is, a, the bar is so low. Yes. Um, you know, there's, there, you know, the, uh, what was, what's, what's that, that, that thing when you, you, you go underneath the, uh, the pole here and the limbo. And, yeah. The limbo. <laughs> I mean, there's not a limbo artist in the universe that can get low enough to get under how low this, this healthcare user experience bar is right now. Um, and as I said, I'm taking the optimist view. It is much better than it was. Yeah. So Mark, this has just been great. I think I could talk to you for hours here, but you know, we're over 40 minutes and I think we need to try to keep our podcast in the time frame here. So I got <laughs> one last big question for you before I go, I, you know, we've talked a lot today about emerging care models, changing care models, where things are going. So let's step into my portable time machine here and fast forward to five years from now. How is patient care in the United States different than it is today? Well, imagine, so you could just take, carry forward the use case of data availability. And let's assume that you as a, as a patient also now have control over where your, your patient data goes. So how cool would it be? Uh, and will it be? Because this, the, the wheels are already set in motion from the regulatory standpoint. We just need to continue moving down this path unimpeded. Let's continue to make this great regulation come to life. Just like if you use one of those aggregators for your financial world and you, you ask, you know, TurboTax asks you permission to log in to download your W-2 from ADP, um, why can't I do the same thing? Have a patient-directed mechanism for moving data from one place to another for, it, for useful purposes, for good purposes. Um, 
if we just tackle that one thing uh, and do that well, five years from now, our how care is delivered um, is is just manifestly more efficient and better. It's awesome. Mark, this was great. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. And for all our listeners out there, thank you for listening to Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Kelly Starman, the Chief Marketing Officer at PartSource. PartSource is the world's leading healthcare services online marketplace and the largest provider of medical replacement parts. So as you might expect, Kelly has a great deal of insight into what's going on with the healthcare supply chain. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing her thoughts on what's working and what can be improved across this mission-critical supply chain, where people's lives can be significantly impacted by the availability or unavailability of medical supplies and equipment. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, please stay healthy, and remember, when you see how low you can go, make sure you're doing it in the limbo, not in healthcare.